What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney This week on What Got You There Sean sits down with Ron Wilson the CEO of Highleet Highleet is a performance cross training apparel brand for the hybrid athlete Prior to Highleet Ron received his MBA from the Wharton School, where he started his former company, 180s, which he grew to be a $50 million business. In this episode, Sean dives deep with Ron on entrepreneurship, how to stand out in a crowded industry, and what the future looks like for new brands. This is a must-listen episode for anyone looking to grow their brand or business. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Suniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Are you looking to finish the latest thriller, such as The Girl on the Train, while you're at the gym or in the car? Well, now you can. For listeners of What Got You There podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check this out. Head over to www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there to choose from over 180,000 titles to select the book you want to hear next. Ron, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Uh, doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, no, this one's going to be a fun one. So before we get into your journey, your story, how do you start your day? Uh, well, today I started it because I woke up thinking about product design, so I, I couldn't sleep, so I woke up at 2 a.m. Uh, and started uh, researching some things and doing some sketching, so that's the only time sometimes I have to think by myself without distractions, so that is uh, not atypical these days. A couple days a week, I, I wake up early and kind of have some uh, alone time, but typically I wake up and check all the, uh, the, honestly, I check the daily reports from the day before we get about five or six reports that kind of just let me know where we stand as a business. And it's really just a barometer to make sure we're on the right track. And obviously when we're on track, I feel like we can focus, but for a couple of days in a row of getting uh, less than desirable or not budgeted numbers, uh, I always take a, a hard look, especially in our business. It's so imperative not to let too many days go by. It's if uh, we're on the wrong, going the wrong direction in terms of revenue sales, where we're getting our business, where we're spending our money. Gotcha. So you usually do always jump right into work right when you get up? Yeah, yeah. I actually, we're, I'm more of a uh, jump into work early in the day. And then uh, middle of the day, we all work out together. We all go around the corner and do the highly daily circuit. Um, and that's kind of the, the nice time to, to break it up. Seems like my brain, you know, I'm, everybody's wired different. Uh, I used to do the whole workout in the morning thing and then do work. But I feel like I get almost two days in one now because I get a reboot uh, when I work. Yeah, we literally work out. We're on the West Coast. We work out at 1.30 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. And then I get kind of like an extra extra burst of energy for another four or five hours. I feel, like I said, I feel like twice as productive as when I used to just wake up in the morning and work out because I would kind of fade later in the day. That's awesome. No, I love that approach and everyone's got to do what works best for them. So, I mean, I'm very familiar with you, your company, your backstory. For my listeners who are not, you want to just give them some background on what you did previously and what you're currently up to? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I've had a, a few different uh, few different entrepreneurial endeavors. Uh, the first one of note was a company called 180s. While I was in grad school, we developed, uh, my business partner and I developed an ear warmer that wraps around the back of the head. Uh, and, it, and it had some uh, some some good success. We we got our launch back then, and this is in the mid-90s. Uh, what really kind of catapulted us was uh, uh, we got to appear on QVC, and that became a, a way to get the word out, uh, which ended up developing into, a, at its peak, about a $50 million business with about 11,000 retail doors. But it was really that, that on, you know, the, the on-TV shopping that got the awareness there for a small company. You know, in today's world, there's a lot of other ways to do that with social networking. Uh, so that was kind of the first experience. And then I got into apparel, in particular, uh, short design, shorts design in, uh, in early 2000s and started another company that was in the mixed martial arts space uh, when that was kind of up and coming. And there looked to be an opportunity there, which kind of fizzled as it turned out most people were not doing mixed martial arts. They were just watching it. And then most recently, obviously, highly in 2012, where I started that with designing a, a cross-training short that I thought would be uh, super relevant for all the people doing CrossFit at the time, as well as just 
in and out of water uh, physical activities. Gotcha. No, it seems like you're really on top of trends and you seem to know what's coming next. You mentioned when you were in grad schools, when you started 180s. So you were at Wharton at the time. You got the business to be about 50 million. What happened that that didn't continue to be successful? Well, you know, I, you know I've said this before. Uh, it was a learning experience. We, it's one of those things where we were extremely fortunate that the first product that we launched, uh, we were, you know, very successful. And we thought anything that we did, it was that it was going to be as successful. And we just happened to hit a home run uh, right out of the gate. And it was uh, for, you know, a lot of us, it was also a painful learning experience because we realized that we had squandered a, a golden opportunity. But I think it's the difference of being at the time I launched that company, I was 25 years old. Everything was kind of on top of the world. But what we really didn't have is that we really didn't have a foundation. We really didn't understand who we were uh, you know, as a brand. And at one point, we kind of diversified in too many things too quickly uh, and really took what was a, a great product and a great business. And our desires to do too many things at once really led us down a, a, a very dangerous path. And we, we, we effectively took all the money we were making off of one great business uh, and started developing a bunch of side businesses that were uh, essentially just draining us of cash. And at some point that, you know, obviously led to our demise, uh, in particular when we were in a, a business environment where we're developing a product that only sells during the holiday season. And with any bad turn of events, whether it's retailers going out of business, which is obviously what's happened today to a lot of uh, companies with sports authorities and sports delays. And I, every time I turn around, there's another retailer that is on kind of the uh, the bankruptcy watch list. Those kind of things happen, so you have to really kind of think ahead. And you know, unfortunately, when you know you're in your 20s, it's a little harder to to think ahead at times, and obviously have the experience to to realize that you need to understand what makes your business tick. And so, like I said, it's a, it was definitely a roller coaster. And you get to 50 million, but you're relying on you know a few a few customers really driving that. You have one warm winter, and you make some bad bets in terms of thinking that you're going to continue to grow and you find, you find yourself uh, falling, falling very quickly uh, to the other side of that equation. I got you. You think there's one thing that is going to determine a more successful business, whether that be relationships, um, the founder school, anything like that, distribution, one key thing you think can really separate a business? Well, I think, I, I think there's always everybody, there's a, a different mix. I think when people follow their passion uh, of something that they really want to do and make that the driving goal of their business, they're more likely to be successful. And I'll frame that for you. So as much as I, I was fortunate to get into the Wharton School, and it, it certainly surrounded me uh, with like some new experiences, and, and it really gave me a network. And, and frankly, you know, we pitched that product, you know, on campus, we sold quite a bit on campus. And as a result of us selling on campus, uh, I think it was 18 students backed us, uh, to, which effectively got us onto QVC, uh, about 150,000 that was backed by basically other fellow students. So that certainly helps to be in that environment, but I don't, whether it's Wharton or it could be any school, I think those, those opportunities present themselves. And I think there are far more of those today uh, than they were back in the 1990s. But I think if you think about what we started doing, I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. And back then, I didn't care. I, I said over and over, I don't care what I do. I just want to work for myself. And I think that is a very dangerous thing because life is too short. And if you really want to be successful, you want something that when you wake up one day and you're, you have a bad day or you experience a loss in your family, you don't feel like you're throwing your life away for something that's kind of relegated to such a small, small aspect, that I think, of happiness. So... When people do something that they love and it doesn't feel like work, it's easier to spend more time. It's also less disheartening if the money doesn't come because you like what you're doing and you wake up every day kind of energized and you don't have to think about it. You actually just know innately what you should be doing because you know, in my case with High Lead, it's my lifestyle. I don't have to think about it. I wake up. I mean, part of the reason a few days a week I wake up at some ungodly hour is that I'm excited to get started on what, you know, what I have planned for the day. And if I was just doing it for the money, I guarantee you, I wouldn't be waking up, you know, before 6 a.m. and probably would be sleeping, you know, trying to sleep till 9 a.m. I mean, I feel like you've heard so many people say what you just did, but the way you articulated it was just, I don't know, really profound to me, really spoke high volumes to how I view you as an entrepreneur and also a thought leader there. So I'm curious, what were you like as a kid? Were you entrepreneurial? Uh, yeah, to, to a large degree. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia. Um, I got the entrepreneurial gene. I, I'm not sure from where, 
Uh, but I was fortunate enough to, you know, do well in school. I didn't have a lot of influences in that direction, but, um, I, I remember I used to be disappointed because someone was better uh, at a specific thing. And I realized that a lot of entrepreneurs realize that they're really good at a lot of things and really good about figuring things out. So they're typically not the kid that excels at a sport or excels, you know, at, at an amazing way. And like, whether it could be music, it could be whatever. There's someone that's just well-rounded because that's what entrepreneurship ends up being because you, you basically open your eyes and your minds to so many things and you know you're not the best, but then you start to realize when somebody really is the best at that and you try to surround yourself, you know, with those people. But, um, you know, certainly from a, you know, growing up, I, I, I tried to start a lot of businesses even as I was a kid. None of them were very successful, but that desire was there from a, you know, a very early age. And I think that's just someone that wants to do something. They see, you know, they see one person, you know, I at least had a grandfather that started his own business, uh, wasn't super successful had a bunch of Wilson's upholstery and monogramming pins and notebooks and things around in a shed. And I used to take them and, you know, think that I was a, you know, I had my name on it. So it was kind of cool to see that, that it was a real business. Unfortunately, you know, it didn't work out. He, he ended up with a bunch of notepads and pins that filled a shed in, the, in our backyard for many, many years. But it's that kind of desire to go out and do something like that and kind of uh, do something different and against the grain, which, um, uh, for whatever reason, I think a lot of people are born with that and, and they just need to find enough people around them to mentor them. And I think in, in, you know, and your podcast is a perfect example in today's world, you can get so much knowledge and so, so much mentorship that you just couldn't get in the past because now you, you, I mean, the internet obviously has uh, become the, the best thing that's ever happened to entrepreneurship in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the ability to learn. I didn't really think we'd go down this direction at all, but if you were growing up now, young 20s, do you still think you would have taken the path going to Wharton? Uh, you know what? I probably wouldn't have. Hmm. Uh, I probably would not have. I, I took that path I, because I, was, I had a successful job, at least in the terms of what people in West Virginia would think at the time. I mean, it's factory workers. So I had a worked for a Fortune 1000 company. I was in a manufacturing management training program making really good money, like uh, you know, more money. I mean, I had people reporting to me that were literally my father's age or older. Uh, I at least understood how to interact with him because I listened to him and when engineers and managers that were younger from him, how they reacted, but I was very dissatisfied, you know, in terms of like, that wasn't my true calling. But I think, you know, if you, if you roll the clock back and you give in, you know, internet and Google in particular and the ability to learn quickly, uh, I, I suspect that I, I would not have, would not have gone there. I would have done. I basically more education on my own and probably would have still gotten some type of degree, but I would have been far less concerned about the, you know, the Ivy league status of it. I got you. Yeah. No one has any excuses these days with the access to Google, YouTube, everything, everything you can learn. It's awesome. What you have at your fingertips. I want to transition now to highly. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, you kind of mentioned how it started. You want to talk a little bit more about the brand and the idea behind the company? Yeah. So, uh, Roll the clock back. It was St. Patrick's Day of uh, 2012, and I had had a, a, actually a, a pretty bad experience with my previous company. I had, uh, long story short, I had started a company with uh, some other partners, and their parent, the kind of the parent company, if you will, declared bankruptcy, and I was kind of left in a lurch. And I had, I think, about a team of six. Uh, ironically, not ironically, but as luck would have it, I think. Yeah, they all work here now at High Lead. So it's taken quite a few years to reassemble the band, as they say, <laughs> but we've done it. Uh, but what happened was that when they declared bankruptcy, even though we were kind of a, a shining star, uh, the company was called Jocko at the time, which is, I think the company has since failed, um, since uh, the kind of the, the second demise, which was really taking on a financial partner who was the wrong person that you know, didn't do my due diligence. And in my gut, I knew that he was not the right business partner. Uh, finan financial partner and something just didn't add up, but my haste to try to get everybody reemployed as quickly as possible um, really made me make a really bad decision. I think I, that was that the lesson that I learned there. And uh, when you think about entrepreneurship, uh, it's really easy to get uh, impetuous and impatient and anything that's a really, and, and, and that's fine when it's small decisions, I think those are really healthy. Hey, just make a decision when it's not a, a big one and you can retract, you know, test, you know, test, fail, retest. But when it's something that's really important, uh, the lesson I learned is it can wait. So anybody that's pressuring you to do something like, hey, I need you to get this done today, and it, it's really a, you know, a contract where you're signing away your company or signing away a significant investment in your company, those are the kind of things that you know, where you, know, you have to be prudent and you have to realize that 
anybody that's pressuring you or any situation that feels too intense that that is that big, I think that's a sign that you're you're going down uh, the wrong path. So I made that mistake. Did you know very quickly thereafter? Uh, I was basically left without that company that I had started. But it gave me a clear opportunity to take everything that I didn't like that I had experienced and said, I'm going to start from ground zero and make sure that whatever I'm doing is something that I want to be involved with. That's my my advice that I just said at the very beginning of this podcast was that it's something I truly believed in and did not feel like work. So I uh, decided that I did not want to sell to retailers because it was a very, uh, for me, it had already been a negative experience by and large because of chargebacks and dealing with buyers and going to events. And essentially the, the biggest thing that, that I've experienced was that as a person designing the actual products, as well as running the company, I wanted to hear directly from, directly from the people that were using the product. So uh, I made it a point to say that I was going to be a direct-to-consumer company. I was going to develop uh, a short and the short uh, would be essentially the hopefully the best cross-training short available and that would be kind of the first steps to hopefully turning high lead into something bigger so my business partner and i matt paulson you know he put in the original money i designed the product we went to the 2012 um games uh, i think 100 days after we uh, 100 days after we started the company we had product and we essentially had a thousand pair of shorts we sold out and we used that success as a as a milestone to kind of build the momentum to continue to propagate and grow, you know, grow the high league brand. Did you guys have any exposure prior to the CrossFit games? I mean, going in with a thousand pairs of shorts, no one's ever heard of this brand. How do you sell out then? Uh, well, we had, we were fortunate because in today's world of LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, all the social kind of aspects, uh, the previous companies that I'd worked with is in particular, the, the one just, just previous, the, the Jocko clothing, we knew a ton of influencers within the fitness space. So we reached out to all of those folks and essentially had them on board of understanding who we were. And they were really uh, quite, you know, quite helpful in terms of getting some exposure out through their social network networks. And then we got to, you know, we got to the games and, you know, I targeted the, the 10 or 12 people that were walking by that I thought if they were wearing, you know, our shorts and a shirt with our logo on it, that they would, they would get some attention. So I quickly outfitted them and turned them into instant ambassadors. And, you know, by the end of day three, we were sold out. Gotcha. So you mentioned the ambassadors. With their social network reach, were they big-time influencers, million-plus, or were they small niche, 10,000, 20,000 followers? They were – the, the the latter so the gotcha. 10 10 20 thousand now since then we we now have people that are in that million range but you know i i believe that you know really you know if you get grassroots and get as many people on your side as possible obviously those all add up it takes longer to make it happen but you know that foundation becomes a lot stronger i i, I i'll much rather always have a thousand people with you know a thousand uh, reach of a thousand and have one person with the reach of a million because that can go away really quickly if the relationship fails or if that person no longer kind of identifies with the brand or the brand doesn't identify with that person. It can be kind of a dangerous situation if you have put too much stock into one kind of super influencer, if you will. I got you. It, it, so if you were starting out now, you would stay away from the super influencer and completely go grassroots again? I would go grassroots uh, with people that I know and trusted. I mean, I, you know, over the, of course I had that, you know, I had that kind of starting, that starting group, but it's, it's tough to find someone that's a super influencer right out of the gate. And if they do, you're probably then you're essentially taking on a business partner at that point because they're going to have more pull, uh, you know, because they have that, that existing base. And, you know, my experience is that those things tend not to work out. I mean, we've, we've tried so many times to go, whether it's someone that's an actor or a, you know, a more influential uh, sports star. And the reality is they, they have a hard time moving the needle. There's only a handful of people out there that can really move the needle. So we've been, we've been really happy with kind of going the other direction. And, you know, today we, you know, I, I look at it in our world, a certified trainer on average has 27 clients in the U.S. There's, I think there's 275,000 certified trainers. Uh, um, and if you look at those people with 27 people, you know, we have, I think now 12,000 certified trainers that have signed up and they're part of High Leap. That's really impactful. And we know because we do a lot of surveys. I was actually just reading the results of a community-wide survey I just we just put out last week. And our number one reason that people care about our product is a friend or a trainer. And the number one reason they buy is a friend or a trainer. So it's really word of mouth 
has become even more prevalent, I think, in today's world. There's so much noise. Nobody watches the same TV shows. So the only thing you're left with is the in-person inter interchange between friends and family and then the social networks where somebody's you know, promoting something, not because they're getting paid or because they really like it or they had a good experience. And that's what, you know, that's the power of social networking today. Uh, it was a little different back in 2012 where you could actually you know, put advertising on Facebook and everybody would see it and it was super inexpensive. But in today's world, you, you never know what Facebook's gonna do with respect to the algorithm. So the, the foundation and the strength of your brand really resides in the people that follow it, the consumers and what we now call like we I'm trying to not use the word consumer anymore. So I started the company as direct to consumer. We're still using the same acronym of D to C, but now we're we're trying to be, you know, a brand that, that coins it as a direct to community and really getting people into the community. And we know just from you know our community survey, I think we got like five thousand results in the last like five days or five thousand surveys and like fifty questions and uh, the vast majority of the people that are part of that community that want to be part of it, you know, they, they come in, they've been in the, with the brand for a couple of years. They've had a lot of great experiences and they're buying, you know, five plus times per year from us. So they, they're truly, you know, buying into what we're selling and seeing the value of, a even, you know, other things that we're doing, community based pricing, community based input feedback. Uh, really having a say in the future of the business. Yeah, no, in preparation for our talk today, I actually went back in and most of the recent purchases I've made and tried to really decide how I came to that product. And it really was these small connections. There wasn't any big influencers, any big ambassadors that landed me there. So that was just interesting hearing you talk about that. And then you were mentioning about Facebook. How did you guys have early success with the marketing there? Obviously, their algorithms had changed. How did you have early success? And then how do you stay on top of trends right now? So early success, 2012, we were fortunate because they had obviously developed a huge uh, uh, user base uh, with their, uh, obviously with their social network, and they happened to go public, you know, right at that time. So they were forced at that point to monetize and deliver value to the shareholders and everything they, they had been building over in quite, uh, quite that number of years. So they began advertising. We literally, direct consumer, we had no other choice. We had no other amount of money. So all we could really leverage was trying to get as many as our influencers to obviously like our page and then tell other people. And then they ended up doing coupons uh, that you could download. And since we would gladly give somebody a discount as a, a way to get them in the brand, because effectively we were essentially making money as we are attracting new customers because we were paying so little because Facebook at that point um, was, there was very few people doing it. So therefore the cost of getting that exposure uh, in front of a lot of people was literally a tenth of what it is today. Uh, and then as, you know, as those, as those algorithms change and there's more advertisers and they think about it and they want to preserve the, the qualities of the social network that they want, you know, they make very, you know, they make very succinct and sometimes very uh, opposite direction choices. So you have to be very careful about putting too much stock in any, anyone else's social network because you're not really sure where it's going to be. Uh, where we where we've settled in is that we we pay attention to all of them and we test and test and we monitor return on investment and it's very easy when you're selling direct because it's easy to get those it's easy to get a lot of data and then you couple that with some well timed surveys and and reaching back out to your you know in our case our community then you understand where you're making the right bets with respect to you know basically trying to get awareness and then re engagement with your community or customer base. Uh, but, you know, as we go forward, you know, we look at we look at things that basically are drive around content and engagement and, and where we spent a lot of our time in the last year was on our highly daily circuit app. And we're still in the very you know, early formative phases, phases of that. I think we have literally just kind of officially launched it uh, about six weeks ago and have about 7000, I'll call them almost beta testers. And we're almost at the point that we feel comfortable enough to even like broadcast it more broadly, even within our own community or making that more of an awareness point. So we're looking at different engagement points that keep people coming back. And I, I believe apps are the, the new way to engage uh, a community or a, a customer. Uh, but you have to make sure that's something relevant. It works the first time they, they use it and it delivers enough value that they want to tell other people about it as well uh, and not just download it and then, you know, delete it the very, the, you know, the very next time they see it on their uh, pop up on their phone screen. I got you. I definitely want to dive deeper into the Highly app. I think what you guys are doing, the vision there is awesome. But before we do that, 
I'm really sure. curious. I think a lot of my listeners right now, they, they see all these influencers on Instagram, Facebook, and they're not really sure how that relationship works. Can you talk about your relationship with different influencers, the structure? Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we have, we have different levels. So we, like I said, we don't, we're not, we don't make it like our end all, but there are a lot of platforms now that you can go and basically leverage and say, for example, I'm looking for people of a certain demographic that do a certain amount of fitness and have a certain amount of followers. And you can, you know, give away product, give away, you know, and give away, obviously give away product and, and pay them uh, what usually is a, a modicum of amount of money. And the person wears it and talks about it and they'll post once or twice or whatever. I think the more that that has gone on, the more people realize in terms of the people watching that, that, hey, the people are getting paid for this. So I think, the honestly, I believe that the the impact of that continues to decline because people realize that it's just turned into a new form of advertising. And are they really, do they really believe in the product that they're wearing or saying that they drink or eat or whatever it may be? So they're out there. I like it as an aware, awareness piece. And if in our case, if it's clothing and they're wearing it, we get the benefit of that. At least somebody's aware and they see it. And that's what we need. So that next time they see it on their friend or in the gym and somebody's actually wearing it, it starts the path of, you know, awareness all the way turning into becoming a community member. So it, you know, it has its place, but I don't think it's going to immediately get someone to immediately jump, you know, jump on the, jump on their phone or jump on their computer uh, and buy the product or whatever it may be. So it's a piece. Now I think there's a different level of, of ambassador. And if you find the right ones, and especially if they're organic and they're real, that comes through. So we have a, we have a few of those. We have Jim Sapani who has a huge following and, um, he's got a million followers. He's got his you know private group. I, anybody can join, but his group, the Jim's army, I think it has at least 50 or 60,000. And we, we ended up being at a trade or an event, an user event, uh, right beside him way back when. And, the reason that we developed a relationship is that he's in, he's in content. He's great in terms of what he does. He has a, one of the best selling uh, supplement lines, both on, it was on bodybuilding.com, but also now in GNC. Uh, so he has a, just a huge awareness piece. But the reason that that relationship worked is that we kept seeing him wear our product, in particular our shorts. So that was a real fundamental grassroots organic. He really loved our product. He obviously could leverage and wanted to promote something. So we constructed a deal that, you know, works for him where we do co-branded product that you can find on our, you know, our website under the JYM brand that it's our product and we just you know, put his logo. So the, his loyal followers, if you will, the people that really buy and uh, his programming, his, his nutritional advice, they have an outlet to get clothing and he gets basically a, a clothing line out of it without having to reinvent the wheel. And, and frankly, uh, I think, you know, it, People like Jim, I think they try at one point and realize, wait a second, this clothing thing is a lot harder than it appears to do all this stuff. And it, it requires a, a different level of infrastructure. So in that case, recognizing there's an opportunity because he has a huge following and he loves the product, you know, that becomes a very substantial relationship that's scalable uh, and fundamentally grounded in the right place. And it's strictly not a, a you know, doesn't start with just a financial, hey, we're going to write you a check. I got you. No, that's great. I think my listeners will appreciate you clearing that up. Do you guys do any sponsorships with podcasts? I mean, obviously, we're on a podcast right now. I'm just curious because I feel like when you have the earbuds in and you're hearing it, I seem to make more purchases based on podcasts as opposed to a visual Instagram ad. I So, you know, uh, uh, Jamie Wardlow is our uh, VP of marketing, and he he's one of the, the guys in the office that has a, a long commute. Uh, we're in North County, San Diego, a lot of the guys and gals. Uh, live kind of closer to the city. So this, sometimes they end up in the car for an hour and 10, 15 minutes. So he's been listening to podcasts for forever. And we've been trying to develop the strategy strategy for that uh, of what we're going to do. And we're just now really kind of, uh, it's taken us, you know, we're five years in and this year kind of upcoming the rest of the bounce of this year going into next year. I feel like we finally have a, the right content strategy and the right story of who we are, so which will, I think then allow us to, to sponsor or, or be an effective part of podcasts. And frankly, you know, one of the things that's going to, you know, be happening is really podcasts like this, because one of the things that we're really interested in as a company is that our community starts with somebody buying product, using it, loving it, telling their friends. But with the advent of all the new crowdfunding rules, you know, we've flipped the script to where now they go all the way through and the, 
the kind of the pinnacle of being come, becoming part of the community is becoming an owner of the brand, which means, you know, it gives me the opportunity to talk about that piece of the business and, and the business fundamentals. And hopefully they already recognize the brand or they try it after they, you know, they hear me uh, on a podcast, let's say, and then they become, you know, kind of ingratiated to the community. And hopefully they get to the point after a few purchases and learning more, uh, that they actually want to potentially invest in the future and become, you know, an owner in the brand and really become a, a really to me the highest level ambassador that we can have. And I'm I'm more passionate about our community members becoming investors and being ambassadors than you know fitness professionals being ambassadors because I think they're the people that are going to drive the success of Highlight. I think it's an opportunity for any brand that can develop a community uh, with the new rules and regulations. It's a it's a unique opportunity to become, you know, a la the Green Bay Packers of the NFL. I got you. So, I mean, was that the initial approach to have them be investors in it for building that community and then just so much brand awareness there? Uh, it was not. <laughs> uh, it was not. I mean, it, basically, we had a lot of passionate consumers. And if you roll the clock back to 2000, and so 2012, we start. I get an angel investor who's a, someone I, I knew and actually had worked at one of the companies that he had owned uh, previously. So, angel investment. And lots of times what gets you know something off the ground we, we started the company with 50,000 uh, got an angel investment which is really uh, designed to buy more inventory a few hundred thousand dollars and uh, that's usually what a lot of companies need to get off the ground you kind of prove something to someone that has the money to come in and, and come in and give you a subordinated note typically it's for growth of inventory or something that is really tangible that they feel comfortable with and then that turned into you know an equity but at the same time, the, the original crowdfunding rules had taken effect, so we found a company called Circle Up, and effectively what we did there over a period almost every year for three years, we did a crowdfunding on Circle Up. It was only accredited investors, so obviously it takes the vast majority of the U.S. population are not accredited. I think it's, it's about 6% of the population because you need to make $200,000 a year for the last two years or be worth a million bucks. So not that many people fall into that category, but we were fortunate enough to be between using our community base as well as the people that we already knew to have three rounds of su successful funding, each just a little over a million. Uh, so by, by effect, because of the crowdfunding, we saw the opportunity as a way to potentially raise money and when it was successful the first time, it started to integrate into our business. So therefore we did have quite a few investors, but literally still less than 100. The latest crowdfunding rules, the uh, the Title III crowdfunding, uh, as well as the Title IV, open up you know a much broader uh, array of investment because now everyone can invest. There are stipulations and regulations, and uh, you can actually find you know uh, find those readily when you type in crowdfunding and type in the Jobs Act. They're all over the internet now uh, about what you can and can't do, but the Title III allowed a million dollars to be raised by companies with fairly low, you know, hurdles to jump through. And we were fortunate enough to just uh, execute that as our fourth kind of crowdfunding investment. But if you think about it, we did three crowdfundings, raised three million, had about 85 investors. We just did a crowdfunding in April, uh, March and April, uh, this past March and April, raised a million dollars. And now we have 1,750 investors. So we have this a much a growing army, the average investment was like 500 bucks. And I actually just did, you know, I'm, I'm communicating with these investor ambassadors and they're really are the ones that we're looking to kind of help guide us in terms of getting us where we're going, obviously provide financial support, also help us launch new categories by coming in and pre, you know, pre-buying like for footwear that we're launching. And I'm really anticipating that our investor base will be the, the way that we get those minimum order quantities uh, taken care of right out of the gate, which most companies don't have that latitude and it's hard for them to jump into a new category. So if the investors believe in it, I feel like we can do anything. Oh man, that's an unbelievable approach. And some of the companies I'm affiliated with, we're talking about building our community and brand. So I'm I'm definitely gonna have to look more into that there. But you talk about the ecosystem of Highly. I know you mentioned the Highly app you've got going on. You want to kind of give the listeners just a little preview of what you guys have already built and then what you are working towards in the future. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I saw an opportunity, in particular uh, CrossFit. Um, a lot of people tried it. We were affiliated. We, we kind of worked with and know probably about 5,000 CrossFit boxes. I don't know how many of those are still using the name as it's not been driving traffic. If anything, it's been turned into more of a, a negative connotation because of all the injuries in particular and the, 
Um, and effectively, what you go in and do, it's really difficult for the average person. And you have to be one one gifted athlete to really be able to do it. In essence, you have to be able to be a great Olympic lifter, power lifter, and gymnast all at the same time, which very few people could do. I liken it to how many runners, swimmers, uh, and cyclists there are. If you take each one individually, you got 20 million plus, let's say. But how many people actually do that competitively as a triathlete, and you're down now to seven, 800,000 people? That's kind of what CrossFit is to me. It's like three athletic endeavors. Uh, it's not, I don't view it as a fitness, really a fitness uh, regimen. It's more of an athletic regimen. So with that being said, and our own personal experiences of getting injured, I really was trying to find something that took the positive qualities of CrossFit in terms of the community and the, you know, the, the, you know, the healthy competition and the things that we really loved about it and take that and then couple it with some things that would uh, basically not get people hurt, make it more inviting, less intimidating for somebody coming in, and then wrap all that into something that could be app-driven so we have another way to engage kind of our community on a regular, ongoing basis. So over the period of the last um, about year and a half, we developed that regimen, the workout regimen. We've rolled it into our daily circuit app, and now the app is available in the idea is that you get your daily workout. People can say, hey, count me in. And you, over time, as we add more elements, there'll be more socialization and gamification. I mean, there are leaderboards now. We just did a circuit challenge for charity for our four High League Nation charities uh, this past month. And it's a way to engage. And I, our long-term you know, long play is make that the hub of staying connected with the High League Nation community. And we're going to add in uh, nutrition tips, lifestyle tips. We've actually are really close to engaging with an individual who has a huge following that we think is another a person that just came out. It was very organic, loved what we were doing, loved the apparel, immediate rapport with the individual. And like he'll become kind of the face of the app because he's got such a great following on the nutrition side in particular. I mean, it's just a, a natural. Now we have an app that's giving you all this all this great information so you can live a fitness lifestyle. So that's the hub of the ecosystem. And the nice part is that we can do that unlike the other companies out there, the, the um, Freeletics and Fitbit and I think uh, Swerkit and things of that nature. We're doing it. We want it as a way to engage and also attract new people into the community. So therefore, we can, we'll do that for free kind of the, 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 for the end user, if you will. But the ecosystem around it is that we obviously fully anticipate them, if they haven't already, buying apparel, which we have. And obviously, performance apparel men's is very, you know, very well developed because that's where we started. We've launched our first lifestyle apparel for men's, uh, and we continue to get more requests for that. So we have lots of things planned there. Our women's performance line is just now getting well-rounded. And we'll move to women's you know, lifestyle as well. So we really think of ourselves as, you know, uh, on the apparel side, much like a Hurley. So Hurley can have a technical board short, a technical wetsuit. But if you're into like the, you like Hurley and you're into the surf lifestyle, you'll buy a belt from them, a winter jacket. You don't really care. You can, you're buying into a lifestyle. So, you know, we see that same opportunity and we want to deliver as much value back to the community as possible. So we, we focus on community engagement and what can the community do to really drive down their own prices. So you know, we're getting ready to launch some community-driven prices in the fall where a couple of our products have gotten so popular that, um, not to compare us to Walmart, but it's almost like rolling back the prices because we have more buying power. The factories love it. Everybody's happy. Uh, we can actually deliver at a much uh, substantially reduced price for a couple of our key items. And then you roll the, you know, kind of roll around to the other pieces that for a fitness lifestyle that you need. Footwear is huge. So our footwear launch will be uh, late this year, early next. Uh, we already have a design. I've been, I mean, I've been wearing our first uh, piece of footwear for about seven weeks now, and they're performing great. So we're going, taking it through the testing phase. And then we're actually looking at equipment, and the equipment combines and works with the daily circuit. So uh, you can actually have what we call a highly uh, daily circuit pod that you can buy. You'll be able to buy from us if you want, like in your garage, or if you're a gym or a fitness boutique owner, you can buy four to you know eight to sixteen pods and run actual classes and leverage the app uh, as part of the training instruction uh, and as part of the branding to get you know customers uh, into your your fitness studio. Awesome, yeah, I'm really looking forward to checking out the equipment aspect of it. I know the footwear design looks awesome there. Uh, I saw some photos of that. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. 
Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'm a huge fan of Audible and definitely recommend checking it out. I'm curious, you seem to be expanding in so many different ways. You have the apps, the apparel, footwear, equipment. Are you guys nervous of expanding too far? Well, you know, it's a common question. I would say I would, I would put the cautious or the, the warning, don't try this at home, uh, <laughs> at the bottom to uh, any would-be entrepreneur. Because if you roll the clock back to the beginning of this podcast, I did specifically that back in, uh, back in the 90s and 2000s. And we, and the, the reason it failed then is that we actually, what we had was an amazing retailer base. I mean, we literally had every retailer. So we had every retailer and we kind of took this broad, we can make anything, but we really had no foundation. So we, every time we were potentially selling to a new customer and the only thing that we had in common was a retailer relationship. So we were approved, you know, vendor of record for every department store, every sporting goods store, every, you know, specialty retail, you know, we had that infrastructure. So it gave us liberty to, to make a lot of things, but it said nothing to the effect of whether they'd be successful. So in that kind of like broad dissemination based upon a distribution play, very dangerous. And obviously we paid the price, uh, you know, back in the early 2000, 2000s. This is uh, different because we, what we've done is over the over five, over five plus years, we've built a foundation. We are, you know, worked hard to figure out who the community really is. And we've also developed tons of partnerships and relationships. So we, like when I say footwear, we are partnering with two other companies. So we're not trying to do everything ourselves. We just have the brand and the community now that wants footwear. They want it to have a high lead name and a high lead design kind of methodology and the innovation and, and quality they expect. But we're using Vibram for the outsole. So we immediately you know, know that the, the outsole and the, the rubber and the, the grip and all that stuff is going to be fantastic because you know, those guys are great at that. So we have that partnership that has been formed over knowing the folks there over the last handful of years. And then we are working with one of the, you know, uh, a well-respected footwear company in terms of the manufacturing side to make sure we're doing everything correctly. So it's our concept and design, but we, we've been able to, after five plus years of doing what we do, have these relationships. And when I talk about equipment, it's the same thing there. We have multiple relationships with the equipment, underlying equipment designer manufacturers that uh, we're working with to make the equipment happen. We're not trying to do it all ourselves. So it's really recognizing, you know, where the opportunities are and then making sure they're done in the right order. So I, I, I always talk about something, you know, much more visionary, but the reality is just like I said, we were going to build a thousand pair of shorts. Yeah. I want to be this, you know, leading apparel company back then was a thought process that's direct to consumer that makes fitness apparel. But it started with that first, you know, even though there were other ideas on the table and it's healthy to think and be creative, the reality is all the, all the activity and all the money and all the, the, uh, all of the energy went into making sure that first short was correct and selling those. Uh, so we, we got our, you know, we've got our foundation under us. And as we get to a certain point where we're kind of at a tipping point of what we're capable of doing because of all these relationships, we have a, you know, a team that knows what they're doing and it's a team that can, you know, be part of a, you know, can be the, the driver of a much larger company. Uh, so with the right capital resources and these right relationships, then that, you know, unfolds and crowdfunding is really kind of becoming our magic, what I believe will be our magic kind of recipe to make sure that we can accomplish things in a, a faster way and a parallel way that would be almost unheard of in the past. Um, there's a company out there that has done it quite well. Uh, for people that want to kind of see an example of it. So we've, we've created our community um, and a company that I stumbled across because I kept hearing about them from different private equity companies and, and then just friends uh, in the business, a company called Peloton, uh, so uh, stationary cycling. And they, they went after multiple things at once. They did it in a really interesting matter. 
Uh, and now, just recently, they just raised another $375 million. They've gone, essentially started the same year as us, when they were about $10 million in sales, got $10 million in financing. They took a lot of parallel risk, but I think they were, they were extremely methodical, because I can understand how they think after almost becoming a research analyst on that company. For the benefit of me understanding and being able to articulate high lead, you know, it's always good to find someone else, especially when they're not even... It's not a uh, competitive company. It's a different customer base, and they're doing things different than we are. But they have proven that you can take the ecosystem, uh, and as long as you can sell your story, and like I said, they've done an amazing job of doing that. They've they develop a community-based brand around stationary uh, stationary cycling with live broadcast, and it's a it's a compelling example for us. And I call it a market validator. So it's always nice to have some market validators, especially as you go up. And pitch for money. Um, like you don't want you don't want people that you're competing with necessarily. I mean, you have to talk about th- those people as well. Like we talk about our shoes, we know we have to compete against Nike Metcons. We believe we have a shoe that's better than Nike Metcon, so that's our our reference point. And if we're talking about apparel, we have to our quality and our designs and our fabrications have to be you know on par or better with Lululemon. That's why we buy all those samples and make sure that you know we we stack up against those types of competitors given whatever product category. Uh, we think uh, that we're going into that we think the, they're the the number one competitor in our space. Yeah, no, I asked the question if you guys are going too far and too wide with too many different categories, but it seems like a natural progression with the community you've built there. So I've got no doubts you guys will be successful in that realm. One thing you hit on is the community-driven prices. You guys want to talk a little bit about the thought process with that and how you do structure that? Because I think you guys do this awesome. Yeah, well, so our, our what we launched last year, we realized that, you know, the the world was changing. A lot of people were trying to take, you know, if you roll the clock back f- five years ago, even longer than that, most of the companies were trying in the apparel world, if they were a direct-to-consumer company, they were trying to leverage that and the fact that they did not have a, a retailer wedge between the, they and the consumer, they leveraged that to get higher margin. Uh, well, over time, that's just, you know, that that's changed. In particular, Amazon, uh, who, you know, really, obviously, they operate on, you know, bigger is better and margin is not the end all. And I, you know, Jeff Bezos has done an amazing job of of driving something uh, and being just a, a leader in that space that, you know, I give him you know, all the respect in the world to kind of sticking to his mission and he continues to kill it. The If you look at that, then the, the things have changed. So now it's like understanding your community and how much value can you give back but still you know, make, you know, you know, pay the bills, get the top talent, and drive that product innovation. So it's more about driving value to the community, and it's not as much about, hey, what kind of margin did we make? Obviously, we want to make margin, and we have to, you know, we have to, we have to make enough to, to uh, you know, propel the company forward. But it really starts changing the way you think. So our first step in that direction was we realized that most of our activity happened when we did like a two for offer or things that were didn't degrade our, our our value. I mean, grade our brand performance in any way. People trusted us, just added value to the you know, proposition. And we're the small guys on the block. So we, that's how we've competed against the women's of the world. So then we tried to figure out a way to articulate that. We had a, a smaller staff at the time. So we came up with the, let's just look at all our pricing, say, this is the retail value. If you buy one, we got to charge you full price. If you buy two, we'll give you 20% off the retail value. If you buy four more items, doesn't matter. You know, regular price items, we'll give you 40% off. And that's been a really effective way over the last year plus, year, uh, 15 months, I guess, at this point, to get that word out. Now we're at a point that, that uh, the paradigm has shifted where our community is much more astute. They understand that different categories and different things cost different amount of money. I mean, obviously, if we're making equipment, the margins are going to be different. If we're making kettlebells, it can be very different than footwear, very different than a t-shirt, very different than a pair of shorts we've been making since 2013. So now we're looking at it being more of uh, trying to articulate what a comparable kind of MSRP would be or manufacturer suggested retail price or what you would see at a Lululemon, let's say, uh, if you went into a store, show a value off of one, but then in the categories that we really, you know, we want to be in or that we, that, that we have been, we've had success delivering more value. So one at one edge of the curve is delivering value to people so that they become the early adopters. At the other end of the curve, if you will, are people that maybe have the same, they believe in the same fitness lifestyle, but you know, they might be in the military with four kids. So maybe their economic buying power is less. They still want to be part of the highly nation. So we're trying to effectively build 
you know, the early adopters used to be people that bought off, you know, in catalogs and things of that nature or bought maybe at Bloomingdale's and then later it was Kohl's and at the end of the curve, it was TJ Maxx and Marshall's. What we've tried to structure is now let's just acknowledge our community that there's, you know, different people. They all have something in common. They believe in the values that, that Highly Nation believes in and they, they believe in a fitness lifestyle. We know people are going to help get products started, uh, i.e. the investor story that I'm sell- telling you where we're trying to get investors and to essentially help funding those first purchase orders. And on the tail end of the curve, after it kind of goes through, products go through their lifestyle and styles come and go, are our clearance locker or flash sales that we just started doing uh, with our community when we're down to kind of final quantities. And we just want to make room, literally want to get the last quantities out of the warehouse to get those off the books and put that money to use on something at the front end of the curve. So so the community pricing, if you will, community-driven pricing, the community ecosystem, we're evolving what we think of it as we understand the community better. And we now think we have a new evolution. And the new evolution will be more about recognizing whether we're trying to launch a product or whether we're so good at a product that we can, we can basically give that value back to the community, which will then just get more people engaged with the brand. Uh, so it's, it's exciting time for me because it really allows us to really articulate a bigger kind of more powerful message because we've got enough traction, you know, with the, the current basic community that we can get the word out. Yeah. I mean, I hear you mention a lot about change. How do you guys stay on top of change and what do you see in the next six, 12, 24 months when in the fitness industry as a whole? Uh, well, that's, yeah, quite a few things. I think, you know, the fitness industry, I, without a doubt, boutique type fitness and smaller, you know, smaller gyms, if you will, and working out, I think two things that are happening. One, and this is supported by the data that's, you know, here today and then and, and the traction that certain brands are getting. So there's definitely this community aspect that people want to uh, have a reason to go work out or, or have a reason to stay with their fitness regimen. Uh, so they need that collaboration. They need that hosting of what they did online. I think it was, what is it? Uh, it's a Strava. The, I'm not a cyclist, but where you actually put, you know, you, you race courses and then you put your times up or post your results. I think they just hit like a, a billion posts. So the social aspect of fitness is becoming paramount. And it's, and it's why it's working for a lot of people. So without the social aspect, I think the whatever it is, is probably going to be passing. It's probably going to fail. And then the other, so the, so the Orange Theory Fitnesses are doing well. Boutique Fitness in general is doing well. The Soul Cycles, uh, the... Um, uh, I think it's flywheels, the other cycling one, where people want to be like engaged with a group of people. And that's a certain um, um, certain community aspect that's super powerful to keep people coming back and sticking with the program. And on the other side of the fence, life becomes more and more hectic. There's more and more stresses on time. People want to do fitness, and there's more opportunities to do it, whether it's in your garage or home or your hotel, where there's these other ways to engage with the community, but they're live broadcasts that keep people engaged. So... Soul Cycles doing it, Burn Alongs, the new companies doing it, Daily Burn. Those companies are all doing something where they're trying to engage people, but they're engaging people who don't have the time to get to a gym or are uncomfortable, maybe just starting, and they they're more comfortable starting in their basement or their you know garage with whatever program they're doing. So I think those, I think the ability to live broadcast and connect with people due to technology changes is a huge trend, and then boutique fitness and socialization and doing things where you're you kind of obligated to go and people notice if you don't go. So very different than the globo gems of the world, the 24 hour fitnesses where people come and go and it's just a different, it's a different type of uh, it's, it's very much the, I'd say like just like seventies and eighties it all uh, uh, the seventies and eighties will um, all uh, all had, you know, back in then it was like racquetball courts and obviously those went away. Then it became gems. So the, the latest trend, and I see it going probably obviously into the next you know five to ten years, is really boutique boutique fitness that is efficient and efficiently uses time as well, which is part of what our principle is. It's all about having all the equipment you need and not wasting any time setting up equipment or walking around a gym. It's basically getting in, getting a good warm up, warm up, getting a workout, and making it making uh, efficient use of time because obviously time is the most valuable resource that we all have. Well, I mean, you're someone who's proven that they've kind of not see the future, but understand trends. Where is the industry going? So I put a lot of weight in your answer there. So that was cool to hear. I'm really curious, three to five years from now, where is Highly at? How are they as a brand? So 
in my world, in my in my in the picture I have in my head, we will be the the first company that truly takes. Uh, and I talked about the what was the Reg CF? There's the Reg A plus uh, crowdfunding, which is uh, essentially you can do up to fifty million dollars a year. And if we truly get to where we are going to be, then I envision us having potentially fifty thousand, maybe a hundred thousand community members who are also investors, and essentially not only having this passion that they really belong to something and that they, they have input and they're backing and they're building a brand, but even creating liquidity out of that and essentially having the ability to have a public company using these new rules because for companies like ours and most companies, the days of you know going to NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange, you have to be so big these days to even get any acknowledgement and you're also involving investment bankers and it's essentially the old establishment wins and the average everyday person doesn't get the opportunity to usually participate. So we have a chance to change that, which is exciting. And then um, if you look out five years, I believe that there's about 20 million people that are, are kind of the addressable market in the US alone that kind of want to be part of this lifestyle. Uh, how many people will actually be part of the community? I believe there's a million people out there that will buy what we're selling. And what I mean by that is they'll want to buy the apparel, the footwear, they'll, they want to do the app or they want to engage in 80 to 90% of what we offer as a community and they'll see the value of that and they'll want to remain part of it. And they'll know that whatever they're spending, you know, within the high elite nation, they're getting the best possible value and, and value, not just being uh, price, but value of their paying, but value of their time and us being a, essentially a expert voice. So essentially disseminating, here's, here's something that we think is impactful to your life, a nutrition tip. And it's not just to sell a magazine and the, 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 tomorrow we're going to have a different nutrition tip. So you have four articles that all contradict each other in a, in a magazine. So if we're, if we, if we do right by the community and we do all this and we start creating this ecosystem of essentially of a fitness lifestyle, we end up with a million we end up with a million community members who on average will spend easily a thousand bucks because they want to have the best possible life and they're thinking about their future and the health of their future and it'll be a, a great investment for them and their family. Uh, that translates to us being a billion dollar company. There's no doubt in your mind that's going to happen, is there? Nope. Nope. Just uh, the question is whether it's five years or it's 15 or 20. So I always say you can get to any size and do anything you want. But the only thing fighting against you is time. So I just need to, you know, uh, I'll be a billion dollar company unless I die first. So Hell yeah, Ron, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are you good? Do we have three more minutes left? You good? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. cool. So one thing I want to know is, is there anyone that you're really studying today to stay on top of trends? I know you've mentioned a few companies right now. Is there any individual you follow? Um, no individual. Uh, I, I honestly, I think I'll, I'll give, I'll give uh, kudos to John Foley, who's the founder of Peloton. I haven't met the individual, but I've, I've, no other people have watched this presentation and he's definitely revolutionary and, and his thinking. So I think they've been a great example. I mean, I watch a lot of other companies that are not in the same space. So I, I love watching uh, for good and bad, whether it's, you know, what, what's right about Uber and what's going wrong with Uber, great, great ways and things to think about. I love looking at companies that are ultra Uber, not to use the word Uber twice, but Uber successful uh, or Airbnb uh, because they really kind of frame things. And I also, I love seeing when, in particular, uh, this new generation we were talking about where like, people are 20-something and their knowledge base and their understanding of the world is sometimes so much better than, unfortunately, the people that have, are seasoned, if you will, at 50 or 50-plus 50 because the world has changed so quickly and they're capped into that knowledge and they're, and they're not afraid to try something. And, and I love the fact that so many young entrepreneurs have a, a social um, compass that really drives them in a way that, you know, I respect and I fully get. I mean, it's a, it's, it's how we make decisions here as well. And what we want to stand for is what do you want to stand for? You know, when you're, you're no longer around. Um, so I think there's a lot of great examples and I, I, I mean, I, I'm on crunch base. I get to all the things there and I, I research other companies and just see what's working and then I'll dive in and I love watching, uh, I love watching videos uh, of other companies present, especially when the CEOs and founders, and especially when they've just gone and done something that is just truly extraordinary that you would have never thought would be possible. To me, that energizes me and puts wind in, in my sails to you know, take some of their same gumption that they have. And maybe I forget about sometimes of how gung, you know, my uh, gung-ho attitude when I was 20-something and, and deploy it when I'm 40-something. You're sitting down to dinner with John Foley. You've got one question. What are you asking him? Uh, 
how much does he want to invest in high lead because they're not competitive. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, what's an idea you've had in the past year you've changed based on new research? Oh, idea I've changed based upon new research. That's a that's a good one. Um, yeah, you stump me. It's, uh, I usually get I usually have these uh, queued up. Yeah, no, I mean um, it's just something like my thought process. I know we've seen the transition from from unhealthy fat to now fat's kind of healthy. This that's kind of yeah. A example. Well, I mean, there's a couple. I'll, I'll give you two diametrically opposed. I I thought that the only way and one will go back to financial and one will go to uh, health and fitness. So financially. Uh, because of on May 17th of this past year, the, the, the last pieces of the Jobs Act went through. So there's this new opportunity to raise money. And because we were successful with it and I'm getting all this newfound kind of energy from people that already invested wanting to invest more, I think there's a new opportunity for entrepreneurs, myself included and Hylene included, that don't involve necessarily having to solely rely on private equity or venture capital. So I was I was in the mindset last year, I've got to make this work and get venture capital on my side and been trying to reach out to them, contact, present, send pitch decks. And frankly, now I, I've actually took, took, went the other direction. So well, first I'm going to write things up for us and talk to the community, figure out who we are, and first see what we can do as a community, because then I figure other people will come. So I basically turned it more inward versus trying to go knock on doors. And that's a very dramatically pleasant surprise is something I think that's possible. It doesn't mean that we won't take on private equity or venture capital in the future, but I'd rather kind of see what we can accomplish uh, as a community before I go, you know, looking for a $10 million check, let's say from a VC firm. So that's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, uh, you know, there's a lot of trends in fitness and I'm, I'm one of the per one of the people I'm, uh, that we're looking to uh, kind of work with more closely. We're already working with them today as Thomas DeLauer and realizing that there's some really smart people out there that are not just trying to sell you something that will actually do the research and give you some really great fundamental fitness lifestyle advice uh, that has already been kind of curated and balanced and checked as opposed to picking up a magazine, you know, you know, as you walk to a grocery store or checkout. And I think that's been really uh, surprising because we here as a group are kind of taking part of that. So like one of the things that I've been doing the last two months that's really made my life much better is uh, what's called intermittent fasting. And hmm. it's kind of a, another trend that's kind of out there. But I've, I realized that I was always kind of wired to do it. And the more I've researched it and listened to it, and that's how I read Thomas's and watched his stuff. I you know found all the data, listened to the folks. And it's really just, it's made my life healthier. Um, I think I'm visually, I mean, I'm not visually, uh, mentally more aware during the day I've lost weight gained a little muscle and it's just been a really kind of a compelling thing and that I would have never thought would have been something that was actually healthy for you so it's really I think there's a, a new evolution of fitness knowledge that's starting to come to the surface that's not based upon somebody trying to make a quick buck so we're trying as a company to partner with those people and disseminate like true benefit to people or at least a balanced approach you know, kind of a balanced news, if you will, versus things that are sensationalized or just trying to, you know, you know, eight, you know, eight minute abs or eight weeks to huge arms, that kind of stuff. It's like, what can you do that's going to take you some effort and you're going to, it's not going to be perfect, but you're committed to it and you're willing to make some, some things that are lasting. Uh, so you need to find those types of fitness uh, adjustments that you can kind of stick with for the long term because they're, they, they're not as painful as, you know, totally changing the way you're wired. Some awesome tips there. So if you could have my listeners implement one thing in their lives, what would it be? Uh, if they're not already, I would always put fitness and health before you do anything else. So never sacrifice, hey, I need to work more, take the breaks. Uh, and that's also, you know, on family life, everything else, and make sure it's a balanced approach. And if you're, if you're doing something that doesn't feel balanced and you feel like you're, all you do is work, then you are definitely doing the wrong thing. Awesome. Ron Wilson. I love what you got going on. How can my listeners stay connected with you and all things Highleats up to? Uh, Highleat.com, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we also have a Highleat.com um, invest page. They're just forward slash invest. Uh, so, you know, we send out quite a few emails, but we think that they're all worth it. Uh, so if you're uh, on our newsletter, you get a lot of communication from us and we'll be building out even on each of our aspects, whether it's Highly Nation, Highly Project, investment pages. We're building out forums and kind of trying to create a more um, microcosms within the community where the community can ask questions and communicate. So really kind of going back to some old, uh, kind of old school town, whole, town hall, hall type meetings. 
uh, that people can kind of interact. We had a really fun time with it when we raised money here back in March and April, and it was really enlightening. I think it really engaged people and got them kind of feeling part of the brand. So, yeah, we, we welcome in anybody into the community. I think if they, they come in and try us, uh, they'll, I think they'll like it, um, and they hopefully will become part of the community and, may, and maybe one day become an investor ambassador in the High Elite Nation. Yeah, we'll definitely make sure to get all that linked up. But thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There, and best of luck with everything you've got going on. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Have a great day. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.